got a black shroud. I'm not sure that's a good omen. Uh, we sang the uh, new song, Heal Us, Emmanuel, this morning. Uh, that is actually in this book, uh, Heal Us, Emmanuel. All came out last uh, summer, part of the PCA's emphasis on racial reconciliation. So it actually has the lyrics uh, to the song in the beginning of the book and commend that to you. All right. Not sure where to put everything, but we'll figure it out. You want to get out your sermon outline, says demanding God's presence. And get that out. We continue our series on the most misused and misunderstood verses in the Bible. This is the fourth in the series that we'll be going through. Uh, throughout the spring, looking at ways that we don't often understand what the Bible is trying to communicate to us. And today we're in Matthew 18, so it should be interesting. And let me uh, welcome home Wes Rosselet. Welcome back. Wes grew up in this church. His dad was one of our very first deacons, and so we're glad to have you back. Turn to Matthew 18. I'll be, uh, start reading at verse 15. Uh, through verse 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. God's word is powerful and effective. Now, let us... Turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, as always, for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us to this amazing gospel. To learn more about your son, Jesus, we ask this morning, give us the grace to understand your hard teaching here. And it's hard not simply because Jesus has the ability to say so much in so few words, but it's hard because our wills aren't easily bent to obedience. We want to listen to our own hearts instead of yours. We thank you for this word. We pray that you would, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, enable us to bow our hearts to its authority. And we pray as well, O oh Lord, that we willingly seek the best for others, even when they have offended us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So why isn't this verse about prayer? Well, in a May 2014 article in Charisma magazine, a Tennessee pastor cited the words here in Matthew 18 to support the practice of agreement in prayer as a way of increasing the probability of getting what you ask for. He writes, quote, Before his death and resurrection, Jesus gave a hint 
about miracle power in Matthew 18. This Tennessee pastor exhorts us to read this promise and see its potential. If we agree, so he suggests, anything becomes possible. And at first glance, it looks like Jesus endorsed this prayer offered in groups of two or three and promises that if Christians agree together about a prayer request, somehow they bind the Father in heaven to give them what they ask for. Now, common sense, if nothing else, would drive us to scrutinize the context of these verses. After all, if two or three Patriots fans agree to ask God for victory in the upcoming game against, I don't know, whatever team is left, is God bound to answer them with a victory? Probably not. Although if it happens, I'm sure those guys will take credit for it. So problem one is there is no law of agreement that binds God to do anything. In another article with just about the same amount of authority, the Babylon Bee posted a satirical article last June entitled, Local Man Waiting for Second Person to Gather So Jesus Can Show Up. It reads, according to multiple eyewitnesses, a lone Christian studying the Bible at his local Starbucks nervously checked his watch Thursday morning, waiting for his Christian friend to arrive so Jesus could be there in their midst. The man, an intern named Ben, sat sipping his cold brew coffee. <laughs> you really think you were going to get away unscathed? sat sipping his cold brew, his favorite coffee, his cold brew coffee, for over an hour as he looked out the window, shaking his head in frustration as his Bible study partner failed to show up, ensuring Christ would not be there in their midst that day. He said, I mean, I do have his word right here in front of me, and even the Spirit himself indwelling me, Ben told another patron as he nibbled on his fingernails, clearly agitated, that two or three Christians weren't there, and thus, neither was Jesus. But Christ only promised to truly arrive in our midst when we have two or three gathered. Man, I hope my buddy gets here soon. I have some really important stuff I want to tell Jesus. Obviously, that's completely made up. And the problem number two is that there's no law of agreement that binds God to show up. And it happens all the time. Prayers which invoke the presence of Jesus uh, during a gathering. Any gathering, as long as there's two or three. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean that Christ is more likely to answer our prayers? Does it mean that Christ's actual presence is in the middle of our prayer group? Maybe he's there holding our hands, which would certainly be far, far kinder than slapping us upside the head which is probably what we need. And for Pete's sakes, which is it, two or three? The idea behind this is that somehow, for some odd reason, we have to have more than one person to get this mystical presence of Christ invoked. And people have made almost a sacrament out of this. However, this is not, not what this verse means. And yeah, I get somewhat annoyed about this, because it can mislead us, A, about the power of God, 
and B, about the importance of prayer, both of which are critical in living the Christian life. Matthew 18, especially verse 20, like every other passage of Scripture, has a context. And we look at the context, we find the full passage in which this verse occurs starts all the way back in chapter 17. And it runs all the way through chapter 20. And the context is quite different from prayer. In fact, the key message is clearly one of church discipline as part of the overall theme of uh, relationships within the church in light of Jesus' teaching of his death on the cross. It's going to get a little technical, but we have a slide. I don't know who has the clicker, but we should have a slide here. There it is. Okay. And I have a laser pointer. (laughs) So if you look at this slide of Matthew 17 through 20, you can see it starts with Jesus foretelling his death and ends with Jesus foretelling his death. And then it parallels giving freely, giving freely, little children, little children, sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom, sacrifice for the sake. And you follow this, do not despise what God values, do not separate what God has joined. Marriage is something that God values. What to do when a brother sins, confront him. What to do when a brother sins, forgive him. And then the centerpiece here are verses for today. And that gives you the overall context. You can see there's actually an organization, a thought process in these chapters. Our verses come right in the middle of a section here that's really important. And yes, all uh, uh, lots of people cite this text frequently. It is dear to the hearts of lots of Christian men and women, and all biblical texts should be precious to us. But they're precious and powerful only to the extent that we interpret them in light of their context and in accordance with what the original author intended to teach. So the problem is not one of agreeing in prayer to get what we want, nor is it one of demanding God's presence. So we have to ask, what is the real problem? And the real problem is, What do we do when we fail? What do we do when we fail at the things that Jesus is teaching us about? What do we do when we're not giving freely? What do we do when we're not acting as little children? What do we do when we're not living sacrificially for others? When we don't value what Jesus values? When we're not addressing sin in our midst? when we're not reconciling broken relationships? What do we do in those cases when we're not upholding this word? Thank you, you can turn off the slide. You see, the problem of brokenness happens in almost every relationship. In almost every kind of relationship. Bottom line, we're tempted in broken relationships to just go get a new version a friend, a spouse, a church, a club, a business partner, you name it, most of you know what I mean. But once you stop and evaluate the trade-in value, you discover the cost is high and the ethics are questionable. 
Trading in the old version for a new version is frequently practiced in relationships, particularly in our culture. But what follows is the floating debris of broken relationships that we've left behind. And the problem is this debris often washes back up on the shore of our daily lives, pulls at our heart, intrudes on our future relationships. And none of this even deals with the spiritual issues involved in abandoning relationships in ways that may displease or dishonor God. So whether the broken relationship is with a spouse, a sibling, a parent, a business partner, a close friend, a church leader, the choices are similar. Well, I can simply get a new fill-in-the-blank. Will this really heal the brokenness in my heart? Will this really help me or the other person get on with our lives? Or will I simply add another layer of debris that washes up on the shore of my life and limits my future and dishonors my relationship with Jesus. Now, this is not to minimize the hurt that's caused by broken relationships. When relationships are shattered, deep wounds are left behind. And repair is not easy. Don't mishear me. I'm not telling you the way forward is an easy one. It's not. Relationships are never the same. And you feel that there's a sucking chest wound left behind that makes it hard to breathe and hard to move on without giving it time to heal. But this is what God calls us to do. He calls us to heal these kinds of wounds, to look at broken relationships. Because that wound will never really heal if all we try to do is forget about it. Colossians 1 teaches us that God paid the price to reconcile us to himself at enormous cost. Now our Father in Heaven calls us to be agents of reconciliation in our individual lives. Whether it's in our relationships with brothers and sisters who sinned against us, marriages caught in conflict and apathy, Disagreements caused by a prejudice and bigotry, or even with our enemies. For Jesus' healing to be redemptive, we have to make reconciliation personal. Now, we don't know that final and ultimate time when we get our relationship upgrade, so to speak, and all our relationships are fully realized in the kingdom of God at the Lord's coming. However, we do know we're called to fix what's shattered rather than simply trading in what's broken for a new model until the same fractures occur again and we leave behind more relational debris in the water that we know is going to wash back up on the shores of our lives. So how do we fix shattered and broken relationships? Well, that's the main point of our passage this morning in Matthew 18. The focus of Jesus' whole instruction throughout Matthew 18 is our relationship with one another in the church. What are the proper relationships between citizens in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus tells his disciples that if you're going to be great in my kingdom, you need to look out for others in the sense of not causing them to stumble in their walk of faith. You need to live your life in such a way 
that it's not an obstruction to their living their life in a Christian way. You need to make sure that you're not throwing up obstacles in front of other believers as they attempt to grow in grace. In other words, it's not good enough to just think about what's good for you. Because now, by grace, you're part of the whole family of Jesus. And you have to think about the needs of the whole family. Not just your own needs, but what's in the best interest of the whole family. And that sets us up for the discussion that we have here in Matthew 18. So let's start by looking at verses 15 through 17 and the necessity of reconciliation. The necessity of reconciliation. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now the first thing we have to say is church discipline may be two of the most politically incorrect words in the church today. It's considered old, um, outmoded, unnecessary, mean-spirited. And it seems that we have to be convinced that it's needed. Yet even a casual look at evangelical churches in America, and I'm sure to some degree around the world, Uh, much less than the broader circle of all Christian churches, demonstrates that missing church discipline, which is the so-called third mark of the church, has left much of the Christian community, particularly in our country, looking a lot more like the world than the people of God. Our Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession of Faith, a standard of doctrine uh, for the PCA, Chapter 30, paragraph 3, gives us five purposes for church discipline. Very quickly, I'm going to read that for you. It's kind of in King James-type language, so it says, Church censures are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, for deterring of others from like offenses, for purging out of that leaven which might infect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel, for preventing the wrath of God, which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer his covenant, and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. So those five purposes listed for you, restoration to the body of Christ, you want to gain the offending brother, for deterring others from committing similar offenses, For purging the leaven, it's an old-fashioned way of saying maintaining the purity of the church, precisely because it's the body of Christ. Vindicating the honor of Christ and the profession of the gospel and preventing the wrath of God for not maintaining the purity of the church. And perhaps you could reduce that list down to two primary reasons, concern for the soul of the sinner and concern for the health of the church. In light of that, it shouldn't take too much to convince people to restore 
church discipline to its position as one of the marks of the true church. Unfortunately, that's not the case, at least in our country. But consider these two reasons for it. First of all, Christ commands it. The imperatives of the words of Christ to his church leave no question of what he wants. If we look at the verses we just read, verses 15 through 17, go and tell him his fault. If he does not listen, take one or two others with you. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There are five imperatives or commands that Jesus directs the church to engage one another in discipline. These are active terms. Go, tell, take, tell, finally let him be. And he doesn't limit it just to pastors, elders, and deacons. It begins with the singular, you. You go. I've had people say, well, you know, what if I sin against him or he sins against me? Which case do I have to go? Well, we have here that if he, uh, in verse um, 15, he says, if the brother sins against you. But in Matthew 5, says, if you have something against your brother. So it's on you either way. Whether he did it to you or you did it to him, you have to go. You can pick Matthew 5, Matthew 18, I don't care. One or the other, you don't get off the hook. And so it's the responsibility of the whole church because he moves from the singular you to the plural you, meaning the church, to be involved in this sort of corporate discipline of each other. And notice it doesn't mean making a big case. It means just going to the person. Now, if this is the only place that church discipline was mentioned in the Bible, it would be enough. But we see the Apostle Paul addressing it to most of the New Testament churches that he writes to. He told the Romans, watch out for those causing dissension. Romans uh, 16, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. He rebukes the Corinthians for tolerating immorality among them and to take action in disciplining a particular member. He tells in 1 Corinthians 5, do you not know that a little leaven uh, leavens the whole lump? (coughs) Thessalonians are warned to deal with those who don't obey what Paul has written to them. 2 Thessalonians 3 says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. He instructs Timothy in his pastoral charge to publicly rebuke spiritual leaders that refuse to repent of sin. 1 Timothy 5, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. On the Isle of Crete, Titus receives instructions about administering church discipline. Titus 3, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. 
knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. Five of the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 or 3 contain rebukes and upbraiding of the churches because these churches had tolerated false teaching and immoral behavior. They failed in church discipline and they received the rebuke of Jesus himself. So the first thing you see, and it's across the New Testament, Christ commands this. But the second thing we see is the church requires it. We need it. We cannot presume upon the spiritual condition of the church. It was with a group of pastors earlier this week, and every pastor thinks their church is the best church. I'm no exception. We think our church is the healthy church. You know, those other guys, they got real issues, but we're good. And uh, we all act that way. It's just terrible, but we all do it. And yet we presume that, A, we even have a clue what's going on in our church. Most of us have no idea of all the sins that people are struggling with. And yet... The idea that there is a responsibility for the health of the church. And that's not just on pastors, elders, and deacons. That's on everybody. It's on every member of the church to be responsible for the whole church. Persistent sin tolerated in one person can influence that sin in anyone else. It's why one of the steps is to tell it to the church. Although we love every member... We have to recognize that leavening effect of sin, how it sort of infects everybody around it. Now, you single out a person as a last resort, and it's not common. But it's done because of the damaging effects of unrepentant sin. It's one reason why we have communion every month. Somebody gets up here and essentially begs you to repent every single month. And some folks, that may get old. But we think it's necessary all the time. And now we have a confession of sin every single week because we need that. And I know there's people, that's the only time all week long they ever confess. Shouldn't be that way, but it is. I know that, you know that. And yes, you can say, but we're all sinners, and that's true, and we do need that reminder. But what is spoken of in this text, yet if your brother sins against you, seems to be something that causes a doctrinal breach in the body, hurts the church's testimony, creates disunity, divisions, and factions, and that's serious and warrants our attention. And yet having said that, and we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, We cannot deal with another sin if we fail to deal with our own. Personal purity has to precede engaging others to deal with their sin. And one of the hard parts is I don't want to deal with my sin. So I don't want to go talk to you about your sin because then I have to deal with my sin. And I don't want to deal with my sin. So I'd rather not talk to you because I don't want to have to look inside and say, I do that same stupid thing. So it's difficult. John MacArthur said, a believer who is not concerned about his own purity 
will have no willing obedience to protect the purity of the church. Lack of church discipline, I think, is directly linked to the lack of personal spiritual disciplines that enable us to grow in grace and in holiness. But Christ's command here is a wake-up call to the whole church to realize that as part of the body of Christ, we all have this ongoing responsibility to guard our own spiritual lives and to help others reflect the image of Christ. We're called to be a holy people throughout the New Testament. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, personally and corporately. So we can't just brush off the command uh, as though it applies to everybody else, but not to me. Most of the time, the need is not to bring an issue all the way to the church, but it's the concern of one Christian for another. Exhorting, admonishing, explaining the scriptures, calling another brother or sister to repentance. So these verses introduce us to the necessity for reconciliation. But they also give us the authority for reconciliation. The authority for reconciliation, starting at verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The reason why Jesus is so insistent on this process of discipline and this need for relational reconciliation is precisely because he's given us the authority to accomplish these things for his church and delegated to his church the power to bind and loose. Now, that doesn't mean that church authority always follows the will of Jesus or that Jesus always acts the way the church says he will because all the authorities within the church, all the pastors, all the elders, all the deacons, are all sinners. Hopefully that's not new news to anybody. Hopefully that's especially not new news to any of those pastors, elders, or deacons. But it does show us the high regard that Jesus has for his church, because it is where Christ is present, and it is where the Father is at work. In the immediate context, as I've already said, the two or three does not refer to a small group prayer meeting. But it's actually referring to the witnesses back in verse 16, where it said, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Those are the two or three it's talking about. All that Jesus says, therefore, applies to the church dealing with somebody who sinned. And there's a great promise in these verses, and that's the assurance that Christ is spiritually present when his people are called upon to do hard things. No doubt about it, church discipline is hard. I hate it. And I'm probably at a fault in delaying to do it and dragging it out because I always assume, of course, this person is going to repent. We just need to talk to them one more time and one more time and one more time. And maybe you need to talk to them. They're not listening to me. And maybe if you know, we send two or three people to talk to them two or three times. And yet sometimes it doesn't happen. And I never understand I always struggle with that. 
Facing conflict head on is one of the hardest things we ever have to do. Think about it, even in our own families. You know what it's like to have to deal with a wayward child or a prodigal child. You don't want to have to be tough. You don't want to have to enforce discipline. But you know that you have to do it for the sake of the child. You know you have to do it for the sake of the family. It would be easier to deny it, to pretend it's not there, but that person's life could be damaged or destroyed, and the whole life of the family will be disrupted. Discipline is hard. It's hard to discipline a disobedient child, but the consequences of not doing it are far worse. And it's the same in the church. We're a family, big family. Family's little church, church, big family. God wants us to be united. He wants the purity of the church. And he's not willing to be satisfied for one out of two. So he says, you're accountable to one another. You're especially accountable to the elders that God has placed over you as shepherds who only want the good of your soul. So listen to them. They want to see you stand before the throne, faultless with exceedingly great glory, to hear the words of our Lord, well done. So when they speak to us, that quiet, passionate, prayerful, pleading word of rebuke and admonition, they do it only because they want you to be like Jesus. May God help us to listen and to accept that. So when you begin to look at these texts, it becomes clear that God's plan for the church is that we would all be an active part of the local church. If you view church as a take-it-or-leave-it operation, you severely limit the likelihood of you growing into spiritual maturity. Your growth in godliness can and will suffer. As I interact with others in the church right here, my own laziness is exposed. My lack of patience, my prayerlessness, my hesitancy to confront sinners. Yet this gives me the opportunity to be lovingly confronted by my brothers and sisters who are in the trenches with me, as well as giving me a safe place to confess and repent. I want that for each of you. When the church is just a place that you can attend without ever getting connected to anyone else, you may just have to consider whether you're willing to have your heart exposed by the Holy Spirit. And often people leave when it gets hard and the real work is just starting to happen. So what's the bottom line? Well, I believe, one, the church membership is a question of biblical obedience, not preference. I also believe that you need to be connected to a smaller community within the church. Community group, a Bible study, a joy group, an accountability group, something. We're going to have a new member class uh, next week. Next week, right? I think it's next week. Okay. <laughs> I need to show up. Um, but one of the things I tell every class is find some way to connect. Even if it's just one thing. Something somewhere to connect. Because every now and then people leave and, and often I hear, I never really felt connected. And I was like, what group were you in? Uh, you know, what... what event did you go to? What program were you a part of? You know, and often there's not much. I can't connect you. You have to find some way that you're going to connect. 
And I tell everybody, we don't ask you to do everything, but we do ask you to do something. So you need to find a way. Because if you don't, you won't last. And a year and a half from now, whatever, you'll be one of those people saying, you know, I never really got connected. It's just that simple. So consider this prayerfully, carefully, seriously. And as you know, we all fail. Lots of ways. Everybody fails. Moral failure, marital failure, parental failure, business failure. The list could go on and on. And the question is not whether we fail. And if you haven't failed yet, then, you know, I'm not predicting your future, but it's likely that you will get to experience this some point in your life. But the real question is, what do we do with it when it happens? What do we do when we fail? This is so important. Matt Chandler, the teaching pastor at the Village Church in Dallas, says the litmus test of whether or not you understand the gospel is what do you do when you fail? We need to believe and act upon the fact that in light of God's grace, failure is not final. And the implications of the gospel affect how we deal with our problems in marriage, in parenting, in the workplace, any other area of conflict or area that we might fall into sin. And finally, you might ask, well, what does it actually look like, this process of discipline and reconciliation? Sadly, we just experienced an example of this this past Tuesday at a meeting of Potomac Presbytery, the Presbytery which our church is a part of. That's sort of the regional uh, group, sort of the greater Washington, all the PCA churches in the metro Washington area. We had a pastor who fell into sin. And he repented, but he repented long after the sin had happened. And since the Bible says in the book of James, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Not my favorite verse. But it's there. And so we had to take action and we appointed a special commission to judge the case and report to the Presbytery. Here's the verbatim conclusion of that commission report. The moderator shall lead the presbyter as, Presbytery as follows. So it's two parts. Spoke to the Presbytery and then to the individual. He spoke to the Presbytery and said, Brothers, we are to proceed in this manner with all tenderness and shall deal with our offending brother in the spirit of meekness, all members considering themselves lest they also be tempted. As before us is a public offense. The censure is to be administered in open session of the court and it's to be publicly announced in a report to the office of the stated clerk. In this censure, we seek to impress upon our brother's mind a proper sense of his danger and we seek that under the blessing of God, it may lead him to repentance. And then he called this brother forward. He had to stand in front of the whole presbytery. And he said, whereas you, teaching elder, and I'm leaving his name out, since some of you may know him, are guilty by your own confession of the sin of failing in your calling as a husband to the dishonor of your Lord, your family, and your office as a minister, and of the gross sin of adultery, we, the Potomac Presbytery, in the name and by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, do now declare you suspended from the sacraments of the church and from the exercise of your office until you give satisfactory evidence of repentance. That was not easy. 
This was someone that I would have considered a good friend. And I had to go to afterwards and said, I'm still willing to be a friend, but you have to be willing to meet and talk. And I don't know if he is or not. Our passage began this morning by saying, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. It's a really interesting phrase, go and tell. It's used throughout the New Testament by Jesus and by the apostles. And it's always referring to evangelism, except here. But the desired outcome is the same. Because when you go and tell someone the gospel, the desired outcome is they would, Mark 1, repent and believe in the gospel. And when you go and tell your brother that he has sinned against you, the desired outcome is that he would repent and believe in the gospel. That's something we all need to do. One final point, and then we can all go home. Oh, I got lots of time. Um, One of the major problems with treating Matthew 18 as a promise to be claimed that somehow is going to force God to show up is that he's already promised to be present. The Gospel of Matthew is bookended with this promise. Remember back in Matthew 1, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the Gospel of Matthew ends with the Great Commission, Matthew 28, that very last part of uh, verse 20. It says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Therefore, by misusing this verse, we are essentially demanding what God's already promised. In fact, what God's already given. You know, think about it. Lots of kids in this church and starts in an early age. Sooner or later, you get the question, where is God? Is God with us? Why can't I see him? And you may know the catechism uh, question and answer that God is a spirit and has not a body like men. God's invisible. And we know the Bible teaches us that he's omnipresent. In other words, God in his entire being is present everywhere within his creation, yet is fully distinct from it. He's not limited by space or time like we are. It's the implication of what David said in Psalm 139, which was our responsive reading this morning, where it said, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. David believed that God was everywhere at all times. He couldn't escape his presence. But this isn't the only way the Bible speaks of God's presence. Perhaps the most dramatic way God reveals his presence is in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the miracle known as the incarnation, which we just celebrated at Christmas. That moment when God entered into human history and took on human flesh to redeem those who believe in his life, death, and resurrection from the dead. In a much different way, we also know that the Spirit of of God, fully God himself, 
has chosen to reside in the hearts of those who trust in Christ for their salvation. Those who believe in Christ receive the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit and experience God in a real and personal way. Which means he not only lives with us, he lives within us. So it's fair to say that God does indeed manifest his presence in ways that are knowable and discernible. And most often when we read of God's presence in the Bible, it's accompanied by the idea that wherever he is, there is blessing. It is a great promise to be sure. Christ communicates to us that when the church is gathered, they can rest assured that he's spiritually present with them. Certainly when Christians gather for prayer, worship, fellowship, evangelism, and even church discipline, they can take courage and confidence in the promise of Christ that he would always be with them to the very end of the age, as Matthew 28 says. But the same can be said for someone seeking God's face in private. Jesus himself taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. God is surely with us. We have every reason to believe that he is with us in an individual sense and that he is with us in a corporate sense. And so God's presence is promised when we're meeting with two or three others in a church discipline matter. God's presence is promised in a community group filled with laughing people. God's presence is promised in an anniversary party of 100 plus and in a worship service of more than that. And God's presence is promised, even if you're sipping your cold brew coffee in Starbucks by yourself. No, it's just you and Jesus. Thank God for that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. And in this passage, we see him, we see your son, we see our savior. Open our eyes that we might see our sin. Open our eyes that we might see our brother and our sister. And help us to obey this hard teaching about discipline and reconciliation. Give us the courage to go and tell and give us the courage that when someone comes and confronts us, help us to repent and believe in the gospel, for we so desperately need it. We need it to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Receive God's blessing. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God bless you. We'll see you this afternoon.